Okay, so I just put the recorder back on. So we're going to continue. We are in the resentments, and we're just about to do that fourth column. So we've looked, we're being asked to look at it from an entirely different angle. We've said that sick man's prayer, which is softening our heart so that we can be the defense attorney and look at it from that entirely different angle. So in that second paragraph on page 67, it says, referring to our list again, putting out of our mind the wrongs others have done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And I think I was told that Lori C. from Canada was here last year, and he's really influenced the way I approach the fourth step. So a lot of the stuff I'm going to say is actually stuff that um, I learned from his workshops. Um, so the fourth column is those these four characteristics. And once again, we're going to write down bullet points. We're not going to go into this big drama explanation of it. So the big book doesn't differentiate between selfishness and self-seeking. So this is how I have personally personalized it. <coughs> Selfish is I'm a two-year-old kid and I have a toy and no one's going to get it. It's mine, 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 mine. Self-seeking is I'm a two-year-old kid and my friend has a toy and I'm going to do whatever I can to get that toy away from him because I want that toy. So selfish is looking in and self-seeking is looking out. But I have to tell you, as a sponsor, I don't get overly twisted. As long as you can see self in there, write it down. I don't get twisted if you don't have something in both categories. Um, and then dishonesty was a big one for me because, once again, that Catholic school kid, I was so cash register honest because I was afraid that I would be, you know, be, be sentenced to hell. And Lori gave two examples of dishonesty, which, honest, which honestly was a lot of my, my tenth step work. So dishonesty is not seeing the world for the way it is, but the way I'd like it to be. So for example, I found out one of my big problems with my mother was that she wasn't Carol Brady. I wanted a sitcom mom, and all she is is Joan Greig, and I resented her for it. The other dishonesty is not telling the truth when the truth needs to be told. That's a huge one for me. I want people to read my minds my mind because I don't like to have uncomfortable conversations. So a lot of times at work I'll get angry because my boss does something, but it's because I'm not speaking up. And my amends winds up being I have to learn to speak up. So it's not telling the truth where the truth needs to be told. <coughs> and the not seeing the world for the way it is, but the way you would like it to be. I have that with Overeaters Anonymous, to be honest with you. I wish we were a healthier fellowship, and I get angry. But the fellowship is the way it is, and I can't be useful if I'm being dishonest and, and angry that it's not where I wish it was, it was, was at right now. <coughs> and then fear is, is I think, pretty self-explanatory when we're afraid. So just like I had mentioned earlier where I tell my sponsees to call people and get examples of their resentments, I'm going to give you an example of mine. So one of my resentments was my, <coughs> my freshman year roommate in college. Um, middle of February, I'm doing my homework, and she comes into the room, and she starts beating me up. And the guy across the hallway has to pull her off of me. The campus police is called. She's removed from the room, and I have a single the rest of the se semester. So my resentment is, Lori beat me up. 
kept that resentment for decades. And now I'm doing this process and I'm having to look at it from an entirely different angle. And what I discovered was when I went to college, I was, you know, a dorky dork. I had never smoked a cigarette, I had never had a drink, I had never kissed a boy, and on top of that I'm obese. And all I ever wanted was to be popular. And in walks my roommate who's tall and thin and blonde and the boys love her. So self-seeking, I'm going to try to be popular through her. Well, she has an official boyfriend, this guy Ed, but she cheats on him all the time. And I'm her roommate and her friend, so I'm her alibi, and I keep all her secrets. Well, this is February in Jersey, and it's Valentine's Day weekend, and she's supposed to go home with Ed, but she gets an offer from a guy 15 years older than us to go to the Bahamas, and she decides to go there. Well, beautiful girl, not too smart, comes home with a tan in the middle of February in New Jersey. So her boyfriend, Ed, says, Kim, what's up? Once again, selfish, self-seeking. I sort of have a little crush on Ed because the only guys I talk to are the ones that talk to her. And I tell him everything. All the things that she's done behind his back, all the cheating, how she's humiliated him. Maybe he'll like me if I can get her out of the way, right? So she comes home from class to see her boyfriend and he breaks up with her and tells her everything that I said. So she comes down to beat me up. <laughs> Who blames her? And on top of that, she can't defend herself because what is she going to say? She told my boyfriend what a slut I am. <laughs> so she can't even defend herself. So here I am, 20 years of this resentment. Suddenly I want to apologize to Lori. How could I? I was such an awful friend. Because see, I didn't like Lori. Lori was not a nice person. But I wanted to be popular through her because she had the, she had the looks and the cuteness that, that the, cute, the cool kids would hang out with. And I wanted to be cool through her. And the fact was, everyone felt protective of poor little Kim after Lori tried to beat him up. And I wanted to soak that up so I never told the truth. And, I, and when I wasn't telling the truth to others, I stopped telling the truth to myself. Does that make sense? So you see how you can look at it from an entirely different angle? and it gives you a totally different perspective. Now just to skip ahead, I still haven't found Lori. I still haven't apologized to her. I don't even remember how to spell her last name. I'm not even sure if Lori is L-O-R-I or L-A-U-R-E. I don't even know. I was so, my disease, I barely remember college to be honest with you. Um, but somebody, somebody, another AA guy said he joked that Facebook is made for ninth steps. <laughs> you can find people. And girls are harder because a lot of their, their last names have changed. Um, but I was telling people this, and they said, Kim, why don't you contact the college and see if they can find her? Well, I actually, I think about it, that's the first thing I thought of when I got my key. I'm in room 225. That was my freshman dorm room. So I called. Michael Hollage and said, listen, I lived in 1985-86 year. I lived in Travers Hall in room 225. I know my roommate's name is Lori, but I can't remember her last name. Do you have information on her? And they said, yes, we do. We know, I said, you know where she lives? Yes, we have current information on her. Can you give that to me? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, could you relay a message to her? And they said, sure. So I said, could you let her know that her freshman roommate would like to apologize to her for some things that happened when we were roommates? I have never heard from her. 
But I have to tell you, I made the approach. I feel peace. Yeah. And I know what my fourth column is. We're going to talk about this in the ninth step. But I know what my fourth column is. If I happened to run into her and recognize her, um, I would know exactly what I'd say to her. Because I, I feel the remorse and I feel the compassion for her for what I put her through. Does that make sense? Okay. So now we're going to move on to fears. And this is the brilliance, I feel, of the big book method of doing a fourth step is I look, first look at my resentments. And what I found for myself is my resentments cover my anger. And then in that sick man's prayer, I have a prayer that says, God save me from being angry. And as I start to treat that from my anger, I realize that my anger is covering my fear. And now we have the fear inventory. And that brings me back to step three. I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear. And I cover that up with anger, and I cover that up with resentment. I know I definitely see that now. Whenever I'm afraid, it's so much more comfortable to go to anger. So much more comfortable to go to anger. So at the bottom of page 67 is the fear stuff. It says, notice the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. <coughs> it was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? I just love that. I mean, it is. It's woven into every minutia of my life. And I love that idea of the fabric of our existence because I think if I know if I have a really favorite sweater and it gets a pull in it and I'm trying to fix it and move the, the fabric around, it's never the same. Because once that pulls in there, it just screws up the sweater. And that's what happened. That fear is like a corroding thread that gets in there. So if you go to page 68, the way that the, um, the format is laid, laid out is the first column is what I'm afraid of. Then the second column is, why do I have the fear? And once again, I use, utilize some of the stuff that Lori taught. Because sometimes I don't know why I'm afraid. It just, I'm just, I just know I'm afraid. So he said, if you're, not, if you're not sure, two techniques. One, play it out to the worst case scenario. So I'll give you one of my fears, never getting married. What is my, what, how do I play that out in a worst case scenario? I'm going to die alone. I have to tell you, the instant I said that out loud, I realized it was ridiculous because if I get married, I could get divorced. The guy could die before me. I've got brothers. I've got a niece and nephew. <coughs> I'm not dying alone. But that's, where my, that's what I realized then. That was my fear. wasn't the marriage part. It was being alone. Mm -hmm. Another one I have is being laughed at. And another technique he gave is try to remember when you first had the fear. So when I thought about that, and it's funny to talk about twisted memories. I just had a grammar school reunion and I realized my memories of this aren't quite right. I thought there was a talent contest when I was in fifth grade and I did a dance and I fell during the dance and everyone laughed at me. I, from, this, from this reunion we had, it was actually a talent show at a, like a nursing home that, um, that, that we did, um, you know, just a performance type of thing. But the kids remembered that I fell. I'm like, great. Um, well, the adults now. But I do remember, whenever I'm afraid of being laughed at, I do feel really young. I get really scared and I get really young. So that's that where that comes from. Now some of them you don't need that. For example, I'm really scared of snakes. So when I was like eight years old, I was in my backyard in bare feet and a little snake went across my feet. 
and I called screaming and my big bad dad, the big marine, came out with a shovel and he cut it in half and the snake kept opening and closing its mouth. And I thought to myself, oh, snakes don't die apparently. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's pretty obvious why I'm afraid of snakes with that. So the next column, they're going to say here, um, actually we'll read this. <coughs> We'll read that second paragraph in 68. Perhaps there is a better way. I swear they love that word perhaps. Perhaps. For we are on a different basis now, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role He assigns, just to the extent that we do as we think He would have us and humbly rely on Him. Does He enable us to match calamity with serenity? So the third column is, where is my trust and reliance? On infinite God or finite self? Now the fourth column kind of is a spoiler alert because it says, did self-reliance work? So it's kind of telling you why I'm in fear is because I'm relying on me. And once again, I do the columns. I'm not going across, I'm doing the columns. Things that I'm afraid of, take a break. Why am I afraid? Take a break. I happen to do three and four together because they're kind of corollary. <coughs> There's a um, saying in another spiritual path that I do that says, fear is a sure sign you're relying on your own power. So I remember when I think of infinite God versus finite self, I, I often think of my mom. Um, they had a hard time getting pregnant. I was born five years after they got married. And my mom got pregnant right away with my brother. And she told me that she was terrified because she had this perfect little girl finally. And how was she going to split her love with this other child she was going to have? And she said the moment she put my brother in her arms, she realized that, um, that love was multiplication and not division. So that's what I find is a lot of my fears is I think that love is finite. So for example, if a friend gets married, if I'm relying on self, I'm like, see there's one less freaking guy in the world. <laughs> But a friend of mine from program actually just got married for the first time and she's 51 years old. And I went to her wedding and what I celebrated was look how much love there is in a world. Look, isn't that beautiful? Let me celebrate this love. It shows me that we can find love at any age. So when I look at it as an infinite, it's inclusive. When I look at it as finite, it's exclusive. And that's why I get afraid. It's like I treat the world like it's pizza pie. And everybody who gets a slice means there's less of a slice for me. Make sense? Yeah. So then we have a fear prayer. That third paragraph down, <coughs> it says, We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have me be. So before we do the fifth column, we're saying this prayer. Remove my fear and direct my attention to what he would have us be. And then the fifth column is, what would he have us be? Now often what people will do, because of the reading, they'll say, trust and rely on God, trust and rely on God, trust and rely on God. And that is true. But what I personally find more helpful is let's assume God removed the fear. How would you be? What would you act? How would, how would that look in your life? So I'll use my three examples. What would God have me be if I wasn't afraid of not getting married? He would enjoy me being single while being opened up to a relationship. 
And I pray in that a lot because I'm extremely happy and sometimes I think maybe I'm missing opportunities because I'm not even, I mean, it's not unusual for, we'll be out somewhere and some, one of my girlfriends will say, you know that guy was flirting with you. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm just so unaware. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, I want to be open to the relationship but enjoy being single. Not being laughed at. <coughs> what would God have me be? Recognize I'm a human being and I'm going to make mistakes. I had a spot, and someone I was sponsoring say this to me, and it knocked me over the head because I, I want to be number one all the time. And she said, she said, Kim, why don't you strive to be average? Like, hmm. That's where the peace is, though. When I'm a worker among workers is when I feel peaceful. But that goes against my nature. We talk about, we talk about fancy to real. One of the things I, I talk to my, my brother, who is not in any way, shape, or form an addict, I often will use him as my sounding board of, what, did this really happen in my childhood or is it in my imagination? So when we were growing up, my dad always said to us kids, you can be whatever you want to be, you can do whatever you want to do. And I thought, holy crap, I better be number one in my class. If I play basketball, I better be the MVP. You know, perfect, perfect, perfect. And I asked my brother, I'm like, do you remember dad saying that? He's like, yeah. I said, what did that mean to you? I can hang out and chill. <laughs> I'm like, which is exactly what my brother did. <laughs> so once again, seeing my alcoholic mind, how I absorb things. I'll tell you another, another funny story. I, went, I, I started out as a nursing major because my dad wanted me to be a nursing major. And I didn't. I was. I loved learning the stuff. But my junior year, I went in. It was a four-year school. My junior year, I went into the hospital. I threw up every single day. The the smells is disgusting. I don't even like visiting people in a hospital. I can't believe I wanted to be a nurse. But I don't know how to disappoint my daddy. So I didn't know what to do. So I keen alcoholic mind thought, well, I'll fail out of nursing school. And that way, the school will tell him I'm not going to be a nurse. So I purposely <laughs> fell out of nursing school. So I remember telling my dad this in my 30s. He's like, I never told you to be a nurse. I'm like, Dad, I swear to God, you told me. Kim, I didn't care because I wanted you to have a profession, but I never, I could have cared less about you being a nurse. No, Dad, that you did. You did. Well, I'm in my late 30s now, and I'm thinking about going back to school, and I'm like, Dad, you know, I'm thinking maybe I might go back to graduate school. Really? I'm like, oh, shit. That's what you did when I said nursing. <laughs> you smiled. <laughs> And I'm the good little girl, and my daddy smiled, and I thought that, oh, I'm going to please my daddy and become a nurse. So I really see how it's, once again, it's my reaction to life that's in there. So, <coughs> and then the last one is afraid of snakes. So when I go to the zoo, I don't go to the reptile house. Simple as that. I have to tell you, I, you know, I always cry up when things are kind of together. I was on vacation with my dogs up in upstate New York and um, I'm walking around with my little Jack Russell and uh, we go over this bridge and a snake pops up through the bridge and goes across underneath my dog's feet. I screamed like a five-year-old girl at the top of my lungs, scared the shit out of me. And there was people up ahead, they turned around and were laughing at me and I'm like, great, laughing at and snakes together. I'm like, oh my God, this is nuts. So. But that's, that's part of this thing, like, I, you know, we, we work on this stuff, we laugh at ourselves, we don't take ourselves so seriously, okay? So, now about sex. Oh, one question? How many um, columns are there to the fear inventory? 
The way that I do it, there's five columns. So the first column is what I'm afraid of. Second column is why am I afraid. Third column is where is my reliance, God or me. Fourth column is did relying on me work, yes or no. And then the fifth column is what would God have me be. Mm -hmm. First column is who am, why am I afraid or who am I afraid at? <coughs> what is my fear? Second column is why am I afraid? Fourth column is um, where, I'm sorry, third column is where is my reliance on me or God? Fourth column is did self-reliance work? Then you say the prayer, and the fourth column is, fifth column is, um, what would God have me be? So if you're ever confused and you want to know what page the sex stuff is on, it's on page 69. It's really easy to remember. Okay. And it's called a sex conduct survey. I think it's really important because I think in the 1930s, you know, sex conduct had a totally different connotation. These were all people, you know, they get married right out of high school, only have sex with their partner, you know, with their husband or wife. This is not a list of everyone we've slept with. This is a list of how is our conduct in around relationships with attraction. So it's going to go in here and it's saying that we're not here to judge anybody. There's no right sex conduct. doesn't matter if it's missionary position only or you're swinging from the rafters. We're not here to be an arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. Now we have a, we had a sick man's prayer in the resentments. We had a fear prayer in the fears. And there's three sex conduct prayers. Because relationships are difficult, right? So they're going to give us three prayers to see. So the columns for the sex conduct is, <coughs> first one is, whom did I hurt? And I want you to expand this. Once again, it's not a list of everybody that you've had sex with. Or everyone you wish you had sex with. It's either either way. Because Brad Pitt, I would love to put him on that sex conduct list. Um, and he's in AA now, and people keep teasing me about that. I'm like, I have a really big problem with 13-stepping, except if I ever meet Brad Pitt. Then that's not a problem. Um, so, God, I get distracted every time I say his name. Um, okay, so you want to you want to expand expand that. So, for example, one of mine was actually my girlfriend's, um, because I was somebody that I was obese till I was about 20, 26 years old, never went on a date or anything. And when I lost the weight for the first time in my life, I was getting male attention. I was terrified, absolutely terrified, and I. What I did is I flirted with my friends' husbands and their boyfriends because I knew nothing would happen. So it was a safe place to kind of do that. Well, that's really disrespectful to my girlfriends. So that's whom I hurt. So let's say you're at work and you, um, a guy or a girl, whichever way it is, <coughs> has a crush on you. You have no interest in that person, but you're going to use that to get them to do stuff for you at work and take advantage of it. That's sex conduct. Or what if you have a crush on somebody at work and they aren't reciprocating and you become um, you know, uh, re uh, vengeful about it? You know, if you're in a relationship, are you using sex as a reward or sex as a punishment? So it's the conduct around it that we're looking at. Does that make sense? Um, compulsive overeaters often are, we wear our disease. 
So are we withholding sex from our partner because we don't feel good about our own bodies? You know, how do we feel about ourselves as a sexual being? I know for me personally, when I look back at it, um, I, I was one of the first girls to wear a bra. I developed early. And I was terrified at the, what the boys would say to me. And looking back at it now, they probably didn't even know what they were saying. They were probably imitating what their older brothers said. But it, I felt dirty and disgusting because of it. When I gained the weight, that attention went away. And I'm looking back at it now, it was a way to feel safe, was if I, I didn't have to deal with those feelings. And my mother kind of reinforced those type of feelings. Like, it, it was like my mom. But she, I mean, <laughs> this neighbor that's giving me a hard time, my mom's convinced he has a crush on me. Yeah. I said, no, mom, he's an asshole. That's his problem. But my mom always sees male-female relationships as sexual. So I didn't know how to, if a guy called me, my mom wouldn't take the phone up. She wouldn't take the name because I'm not supposed to talk to boys. So even to this day, one of the things I have to work on is having guy friends. I don't know what that experience is like. So think about it that way too. Like how do we interact with the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on what your sexual orientation is, and how do you handle those relationships? That's what this is trying to look at. So think of it more generally. Once again, if you had a healthy relationship, there's no reason to put it down. We're looking for those things that are blocking us. So we're not doing a list of all our relationships. It's the sex conduct that's blocking us around there. So the first column is whom did I hurt? The second column is where I had been selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate. And we're, we're doing bullet points again. Now inconsiderate, <coughs> someone told me that's almost, recently I heard this, it's almost the opposite of self-seeking. In self-seeking, I'm thinking what, what you could do for me, and inconsiderate is I'm not considering what your, your point of view at all. So we're doing, we're doing the bullet points. And then the third column is, and once again, this is just for me, I just acknowledge if this is true, I don't write about it. Did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, yes or no, suspicion, yes or no, or bitterness, yes or no? These, these questions are in the first full column on page 69. Okay, and then at that point, we're going to go into the prayers. So the first prayer is the second full paragraph on page 69. It says, in this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? Here, so anywhere we see the word ask, that's a prayer. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. So this is where I would get confused because once again, what is my ideal? Brad Pitt, easy answer. That's not what it's asking. It's asking not what kind of boyfriend I want, what kind of girlfriend do I want to be? Who do I want to be in this relationship? Who do I want to be as a coworker where there's a, something going on with attraction with a coworker? Does that make sense? So I'm going to jump ahead for a minute. So in step 10, I consider these prayers relationship prayers. And what I do is I create ideals around all my relationships. So when it comes to my mom, not what kind of mother I want to be, but what kind of daughter do I want to be? I have ideals. I used to have an ideal with my brothers. And then, you know, a few years ago, I realized my brothers are very different people. So I need to have an ideal with my brother Jeff, 
and I deal with my brother Scott. <clears throat> and then even beyond that, my brother Scott, the one who's got the learning disability, was hired at my company, and he's a custodian at my company now. So I now have an ideal for as a coworker to my brother and as a brother, I mean as a sister to my brother. And when I was when, when I was having a hard time, um, somebody called my brother a retard at work and he was crying. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to beat the crap out of this guy. And I had to get quiet and I was very angry and I when I was doing some work on it, I clearly heard, you know, this ideal involves your brother, maybe you should talk to him about it. <laughs> So I took him out to lunch and I told him I was having some difficulty with being a sister and being a co-worker and I needed to know what he needs from me from both. And we kind of set up some things. When I'm getting too pushy, which I tend to do, um, we decided that he's going to say the word banana. And that just tells me that I'm getting a little bit too pushy. And what was beautiful is at the end of the conversation he said to me, Kim, I still need my big sister. And I was like, oh, can I hug you? No! <laughs> Please, no! So these, these ideals are going to change. I have an ideal as a member of Overeaters Anonymous. I have an ideal as a member of my home group. I have an ideal as a political activist. I have as an ideal in all these different areas of my life. So the second prayer is in that last paragraph. So first we ask... And then in that next paragraph it says, in meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. So for example, I have some stuff going on with my mom and dad right now with aging. So I'm doing a lot of prayer on that. I, I approached my mother a couple weeks ago, did not go well, um, because her memory's getting really bad and I wanted her to get tested for, for early dementia and she was blew up at me, blew up at me. So I do in, in prayer in that and I realize I am the daughter, I can make suggestions they don't have to listen to me. So I take each thing into each specific matter. Now on page 70, the second full paragraph is the next, um, <coughs> the last prayer. So to sum it up about sex, we earnestly pray. So here we ask, we meditate, and now we're going to earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. So things are challenging. So once again, I'm having some issues with my, with my parents. My dad's 82, his arthritis is really bad. You know, in fact, it was interesting, this is kind of off topic again, but I'm always asking God in to like how I can be useful to them. And my dad asked me a few months ago if I would drive them down to Virginia to see his brother. And I said, oh, okay. He's like, well, you know, it might be the last time I see him. I said, are you? Are you okay, Dad? He's like, well, you know, my brother's 90. I said, oh, thank God. You're thinking, you're, you're thinking Uncle Leo will die. Thank God. Like, like, but when I went down there, I really saw some interesting thing. My Uncle Leo, is, um, he has two doctorates, two doctorates in physics. He is all cerebral. I remember being down there, and I'm reading a romance novel, and he's reading a physics textbook, and he's having more fun. Like, he just loves that stuff. And as I'm watching him, and he's, he's got... He only has one kidney, and he's got he had some stuff with gout in his foot and all this stuff. But he's perfectly fine because he's up here. He's doing his New York Times crossword puzzle. He's playing on his computer. Everything that he loves is not inhibited by the way he's aging. 
My dad is a Marine. He's run a marathon. He was nationally ranked in table tennis in his 20s. Um, he is a physical guy. This arthritis is so devastating to him. He's an avid gardener. He can barely garden anymore. So I really saw how the way my dad is, is aging is taking away his identity. And he's in a lot of pain. So now I'm afraid of him falling because he, well, the stiffness is one thing, but then when he feels the pain, he kind of gets jarred and he kind of gets off balance. And he's, you know, he does the gardening in my house and my yard. I never had, I moved in 14 years ago. I'm, if he ever touched the inside of my house, I'd kill him. But the outside, I let him, whatever he wanted to do was fine. And my garden is gorgeous and I have no idea a single name of a plant that's out there. But he really can't do it anymore. And he, and I, we got in a huge argument this summer because he wanted to get a ladder and do something. I'm like, you do not go on a ladder in my backyard. I said, because if you fall, there's no neighbors there during the day that can help you. I said, no. Um, but I had made some suggestions to him and he just started on that medical marijuana oil and he's getting relief. But when I first mentioned it to him, he dismissed it because I'm his kid. And then for some reason he mentioned it to his doctor and now his doctor recommending it, it's a good idea. <laughs> so I'm, I have to be, you know, I'm using this all the time. I've, I've talked to my parents about possibly moving to an over 55 community because I don't think this two-story house is going to be doable. Made the suggestions. They wanted to move right away and now they're telling me they're never doing it. So this is the reason I'm saying you got to constantly be in prayer. How can I be useful to my parents? And I'm honored that I get to do that. And I'm in a situation because I'm not married, I don't have kids, that I can be more useful to them as well. Um, <coughs> and the big book's going to tell us again, if sex is very troublesome, throw ourselves the harder into helping others. The big book says over and over again, when there's a problem, go help another alcoholic. You know, society will tell me I gotta think about me. Self-care. The spiritual life is exactly the opposite. My problem is I think way too much about me. And what I'm gonna get relief at is trying to help others. When someone calls me and tells me that they're having a really difficult time and whatever reason, do you have a suggestion? My suggestion normally is get another sponsee. Because you're, if you're in your head all the time about whatever that is, you know, I mean, I remember a girl that was, she had cancer, she was getting cancer treatment, and she said to me, Well, this is going to give me more time to work with people since I won't be at work. And I thought, Holy crap, that's beautiful. Because that was difficult for her to be home alone, so she was going to work with more people. Mm -hmm. <coughs> a question? Mm -hmm. Could you um, mention where the, each of those prayers is yeah. in the first, second, third, and fourth? So the first one is on page 69, the second full paragraph in this way, it's the third sentence. Okay. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. The second one is the next paragraph, the last full paragraph on 69, in the middle of, the, it's like the second to last sentence. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. And then on page 70, the last one, is the second full paragraph. To sum it up about sex, we earnestly pray. Thanks. And like I said, utilize. One of the mistakes I made was that I stopped using the fourth step prayers after I got out of step four. The four step prayers are what we learn in step four. And 
I don't know how you do a ninth step without doing the fourth step prayers in all honesty. That's what softens your heart and gives you the ability to make an amends. But in step 10, if I have resentment, there's a sick man's prayer. If I have a fear, there's a fear prayer. If I have a problem relationship, there's relationship prayers and I utilize these prayers on an ongoing basis. <coughs> so to be more generic, on page 70, since we're finishing up this step four, so suppose we will fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're gonna get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let, go, let God take us to better things, we believe we'll be forgiven and we'll have learned our lessons. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. So I think this is a general warning for step four. So for example, one of the things I really was very into was gossiping. Does that mean after I've gone through this step work I've never gossiped again? Hell no. But when I've gossiped, I immediately get up to a step 10. I bring it through step 10, which is four through nine, and I make amends where necessary. So does that mean I'm gonna pick up? No. But, example at work again, with all the gossip going on because of what's going on at work, if I choose not to do these steps and I choose to continue to gossip because my company deserves it, am I going to eat again? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have to incorporate these principles into all my affairs, otherwise that mental twist will come in and it will take me down again. <coughs> so on top of 71, it says, we hope that you are convinced that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off. Not me. The, the inventory is not for me to figure it out. It's for me to recognize the blocks so that God can remove them. If I've already made a decision, step three, and an inventory of my grosser handicaps. So once again, these are we're looking for the boulders that are blocking us. Those pebbles will be taken care of in step 10. The way I really approach it is that this is a skill set that I learn in 4 through 9 and then in 10 and 11 is where I implement it. You have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. So once again, I always thought inventory was step 4 when I read it off the wall. Only step that mentioned is inventory. But the inventory is an inventory process. It's 4 through 9. So when I said, I've done a step four, I've done an inventory, what I really meant was I wrote a lot of stuff in a notebook about how much I hate people. <laughs> if you've not gone through four through nine, you've not done an inventory. It's as simple as that. So we have a couple minutes before our next break. Does anybody have questions? So on the resentment part, what was the fifth column? There wasn't a fifth column in the resentment. You mean the, the fear one? Oh yeah, the fear. What would God have me be? You're welcome. What was the fourth column for the resentment part? That's the selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Mm -hmm. The sex columns, the first one is whom did I hurt? The second column is where was I selfish, dis dishonest, and inconsiderate? <clears throat> the fourth column I'm sorry, the third column is, did I unjustifiably... Okay, so we're starting step five. Um, 
where I'm struggling with a step 10 issue and somebody calls me and by helping them with their 10 steps, suddenly the answer I've been looking for for a week comes to me. Because in my objectivity in seeing them, I was given my own answer. Does that make sense? So if we turn to um, page 75, the second paragraph is what we call the fifth step promises. And these to me are some of the best promises in the book. So it says we pocket our pride. And only recently this was pointed out to me. It doesn't say we get rid of our pride. We pocket it, which I thought is fabulous because it tells us we're, you know, we're human beings. We're going, to, um, we're going to bring it back out eventually, right? But we're going to pocket our pride, illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, we are delighted. I definitely felt lighter because I thought if I ever told someone the things that I had done, they were going to hate me. And what I have to tell you is most people are like, been there, done that. I wish I had an exciting fifth step to listen to. Most of the fifth steps are pretty boring because we all do the same thing. We're all selfish and self-centered. Um, we can look the world in the eye. This was the biggest one for me because what I learned when I was a kid was become who people tell you, who become who people want you to be and they will love you. So I would become whoever other people wanted them to be. And when, because of that, I was, I was constantly having to remember, what lies did I tell you? What did I say? What can I say to impress you? And all that going into my head, I couldn't pay attention to you. So I couldn't look you in the eye. Once again, as a recovered woman, that's, a, that's, that's one of my little red flags. If I find myself not looking people in the eye, usually there's something going on I have to do a 10 and 11 on. Um, we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. I still have a hard time with that. I'm definitely someone that turns the TV on and the radio on the second I come in a room. I'm not real good in total silence, but I'm much better. Our fears fall from us. So once again, for me, even just recognizing my fears weren't tethered to the real reason, they started to fall from me. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. So this is when I started to... <coughs> realized I didn't have to go to Morristown, New Jersey to have a relationship with God. It started to become more holistic and I felt that I could ask God about everything. And the big thing for me was I didn't have to hide who I was. You know, in my, in my religion there's mortal sins and if you commit a mortal sin you're, you know, you're damned to hell, there's nothing you can do. And that always kept me fearful that, you know, it didn't matter what I did because I committed a mortal sin. Um, the feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. For me personally, that didn't come till step nine. So I wanted to mention that because I think, once again, I, the way I have to explain it is life, this recovery process is not a light switch, it's a dimmer switch. So are these things happening less frequently, less intensely? We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Broad highway is capitalized. So this is when I started to feel a part of Overeaters Anonymous, a part of my family, a part of my office. I always felt separate from, like I had to prove something. And I started to feel a part of. So when we give that fifth step, it says sit down for a long talk. <coughs> Once again, this is my approach. What I feel I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to see the patterns. <coughs> so I personally don't have people read all the columns. There's only certain columns I have them read. And I write down little, I let them know I'm going to be writing down in case they're nervous. 
um, and I write down little um, commonalities I'm seeing. A lot of times it's a theme. Like I've had sponsees where the theme is, this one girl, it was Norman Rockwell. Like everything was about, she wanted everything to look in a certain way in order for her to feel safe. You know, um, another girl, I, the theme was simply Goldilocks. Everything had to be just right. So, like I said, it normally takes like an hour, an hour and a half, but I'm looking for those patterns. So what I do is I say, okay, we're going to do resentments first. You're going to read the columns. Like I said, I don't have them read all the columns. At the end of it, I'm going to ask you what, you, what patterns you see, and I'm going to tell you what patterns I see. And then we go on to the fears. We do the same exact thing. And then we go on to the sex conduct and do the same exact thing. And then we... we um, there's a part here that says we take an hour to reflect and after that hour they call me back. Now I'm not a stickler for an hour. What I do is I tell them get quiet and when your mind starts to wander call me back. So if that's 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 15, don't take more than an hour. But don't sit there for 20 minutes like do 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 if you want, if you want to call me back. And then <coughs> down that bottom it says when you're taking that hour it says Carefully review the first five proposals and ask if you've omitted anything. So we're looking at those first five steps. That's the proposals. Do I believe I have the allergy of the body and the mental twist? Do I believe that I need a power? Do I believe that living on self-will is going to get me nowhere and I'm making a decision to turn my life over? And with the fourth step, it's not did I write everything down that ever happened to me. I say, let me know if there's anything purposely you didn't tell me. Because that's the problem. Not that you forgot stuff. And you'll, you'll catch. Believe me, if you're ticked off about something, it'll happen again. And you can do it in step 10. But is there anything you are purposely not telling me? That's what I want to know. Mm -hmm. And then it says, is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement and putting mortar without sand? I have no idea what that means. Mm -hmm. But I think it's talking about the combination of stuff. So once again, skipping ahead, <clears throat> even after I take this hour, these to me are some great 11-step questions. Because I'm asking myself, you know, am I a little bit too heavy on 10 and 11 and not doing enough work in step 12? Am I a little bit too much fellowship and I'm not doing my step work? Or am I so into my step work, I'm ignoring my fellowship? What I often find is when I'm not doing 10 and 11, I use step 12 as a drug. I'm trying to get a hit off of people because I'm not doing my spiritual work. But I also find if I'm not working with people, I can get into self-analysis really bad in step 10 and 11, and that's not good either. So that's a good meditation. Am I properly grounded in all areas of, of my step work in this fellowship? And then, when they come back from that hour, <coughs> we do 6, 7, and 8. So here's one of my prejudices, too. I thought with the steps on the wall, if there's 12 steps... They must have equal importance and take the equal amount of times, which I think is why we do a step a month or a step a week. The big book method is we do five, six, seven, eight, all in one day. And that's the approach I have. I know a lot of people that don't do that. Once again, listen to your sponsor. If you're getting freedom, don't change anything. But I find that's most efficient. Let's do it all in one day, and the next appointment we have is, is, step, is step nine. So here's my prejudices about step six and seven. I thought I had to list a hundred defects and it was my job to change and I had to practice the opposite. The other one is I had to give up my entire personality. 
So let's look what the big book tells us six and seven means. Sure, that I have, I have to make a list of 100 defects, and it's my job to change, and I do that by practicing the opposite of whatever the defect is. And the second one is I have to give up my entire personality. I think in the AA12 it talks about being the hole in the donut, like you're, you have nothing left. I'm not very familiar with the AA12 and 12. Okay, so the first paragraph on page 676 um, is step six. The second paragraph is step seven. So they're kind of companion steps. So the, in step six, the word that always jumps out at me is, uh, am I now ready to let God remove all, from us all the things we've admitted are objectionable? I love that word objectionable. Because if you had asked me prior to doing these steps, Kim, can you tell me some of your good qualities? I would have told you I'm self-sufficient, I um, can pull myself up my bootstraps, and I'm independent. And I find in my, in my step work, those are some of my biggest liabilities. That's what's holding me back. <coughs> so I don't know what's objectionable until I've done step one through five. So once again, it's so important to do these steps in order. And then the step seven, is, it's simply a prayer. So it says, when ready, we say something like this, my creator. Now, I even love this terminology because what I have learned up to this point is I create chaos. And if I create chaos, I need another creator. So I love that language, my creator. I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. So I'm no longer going to be the arbiter of what's good and bad. So I'm going to turn over overall to God because what's good, what my assets are might be some liabilities and what my liabilities might be some assets. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. So they're saying here that it's not, I don't have to give up my entire personality. It's what is blocking me. What, what stands in my way of being useful to you and the people around me. That's what, that's what God's going to take away. God's going to use my defects. You know, we've kind of talked a little bit about this Jersey attitude I have, this East Coast attitude. God uses that. You know, there's people that, that need that, that more straightforward. So that's what God uses me for. There's people who need that softer tone. That's what they use Lori for. The people who need the, the crap scared out of them, they're going to be attracted to Ruth. So God's going to use us in each of our personalities so that we can help. That's the beauty of our fellowship. It's not a weakness. The more diverse we are, the more people we can help. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Why do I need strength? Because I don't know how to act. I've relied on these defects for so long. Now for me personally, and once again, you're going to hear different things from different big book teachers, I find it simplest to look at the defects that the fourth step revealed. I'm selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Now what I want to do with my undergraduate psychology degree is I want to use fancy terms like passive-aggressive and abandonment issues and you know all these different words. But really all they are are just different machinations of these four character defects. So instead of staying whack-a-mole and listing 60 defects on a piece of paper, I just like these four. It keeps it a lot simpler. So when I'm being passive-aggressive and I ask God to remove my selfishness, my dishonesty, my resentment, my fear, He's going to know what I'm talking about. 
I don't have to get up and identify it. And these are simply two paragraphs. So for me personally, the reason I think it's two paragraphs is I don't do anything. All I'm doing is say, God, remove them. There's nothing in here about me working on my defects. I'm not supposed to figure out how to remove them. If I could have done that, I would have done that years ago. I know I'm supposed to be honest. I don't know how to do that. So if I surrender my dishonesty to God, when God removes it, honesty will naturally pop up. So I just think it's much simpler that way. Now the ironic thing is, most of my step 10 work is 6 and 7. Because in step 10, we're going to be told to look out for these four de defects. But they don't say work on them, they say watch for them. And my job is to turn them over because I'm always going to be a human being. I heard it described this way too. Six and seven becomes my step one for the rest of my life. Because these are now the things I'm powerless over. My own humanity. Once again, haven't compulsively overeaten in eight and a half years. Have I indulged in selfishness, dishonesty, and resentment and fear? Uh-huh. And that's why I need God to remove them. Does that make sense? <coughs> so, looking at those prejudices, do I need to look list 100 defects, and is it my job to remove them? No. And do I have to give up my entire personality? No. So much simpler the way the big book presents it. Okay, so now we're getting into 8 and 9. So here's my prejudice with step 8 and 9. An amends is simply saying, I am sorry. And the second one was the concept of living amends. So because of time, I'm just going to kind of give you some general concepts in there. What the book does is it explains some principles. The way I think about it is, is the, um, kind of like the warnings of what happens if you don't do the amends. And then also the posture you take when, when you give an amends. And then it gives you examples of amends. So what I'm going to do is talk about the posture and the warnings. And then I'm going to give you examples of my own amends. And once again, it's the same thing I do with my sponsees. Is I suggest that they call people and ask for examples of their amends versus opinions about how they should make their amends. Does that make sense? Because... That a lot of times, like, instead of calling someone and saying, can you help me figure out what amends I should do, is call them and ask for examples of their amends. So if you're confused about how to make an amends, let's say, to someone who's died, is ask someone, you know, have you, have you ever did an amends to someone who passed away? And then take that experience into prayer with your higher power, and it might give you an idea <coughs> of what to do. I, one of the questions I asked, because my biggest fear was, what if it doesn't work out right? So I asked people for examples of amends that didn't go well because it helped me to understand that that was part of the process. So let's go over the warnings first. So on page 76, oh, what, what, what step eight is, is simply everybody that you wrote on your fourth step list goes on your eighth step list. It doesn't mean that you have to make amends to them all. The question is, are you willing to put them all on the list? which is a, one of the reasons I think people don't want to put stuff on their fourth step list because they're afraid about the nine. Mm -hmm. But just are you willing to put it down there? And as you go through your fifth step, what I often find is you start to see how you show up in life and you're going to start to realize, oh crap, I have to put someone else on there. Not related to an amends, 
I mean, to a resentment, a fear, or sex conduct. So if one of them for me, when I saw my how I showed up in life, <coughs> was when I babysat, man, I ate people out of house and home. <laughs> you know, they said have whatever you want, but they had no idea what they were saying to me. <laughs> so I had to go back and make amends to some of the people that I, um, you know, babysat for. No resentment, no fear, no sex conduct, but I saw how selfish I was, and I, and I was able to put that down as an amends. Once again, for Kim, not for the big book, what I found was easiest is I tell them to put um, each eight-step list person or, or institution or principal on an index card. And then write on that index card your fourth column. Because that's how your harm is. Your harm is your fourth column. So for example, I, if, I am writing <coughs> if I'm writing on something on my mother, my fourth column is my harm, right? If my mother was doing the inventory on me, my fourth column is probably her second column because that's what's pissing her off about me is, what, is how I'm acting in my fourth column. Does that make sense? So that, so that keeps it simple. And for me, once again, I like to accomplish things. So it just was the tangible way of as I was doing my amends and my pile of to be done and done started to switch. It started to give me some momentum. You know, for me personally, again, knowing your personality, I'm someone that, you know, I'm someone that, like, I turned my book reports in school two weeks early. Like, I just, I, and it wasn't because I was such a good student. My anxiety was through the roof, and I had to have stuff done early. I'm the same way when I show up to place. I have to be 15 minutes early to feel on time where my anxiety is through the roof. <coughs> Can't hear me? Can you say that again? Okay, so what I, I did is I tell them to put in the eight-step name, institution principle on it and then the fourth column because that's what the harm is and then on the back they can put down and we know whatever we discuss if they're going to talk to them phone call whatever that amends is going to look like but that just makes it a little bit more tangible to have it there but that's just my suggestion you do not need to do that it's not, I mean I'm not that you need to do it but it's not a big book suggestion it's a Kim, Kim Greg suggestion so let's look at the warnings because that's what I find <laughs> is a lot of people it's more it was more important for me to know what would happen if I didn't do the work that's what motivated me so on page 76 the fourth the the third paragraph down the last sentence in that paragraph remember it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol and then on page 77 that paragraph that starts from the top, wait a minute, no, the last paragraph on page 77, four lines up from the bottom, simply we tell them that we will never get over drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. If we go to page 78, the second full paragraph, most alcoholics owe money, the last sentence, we must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. Now you notice it doesn't say pay the money back. We have to face our creditors. I think that's something that sometimes people do is they, they sit there in fear saving up money until they can pay the money back. And it's the fear that's going to make us drink or eat. So we, we acknowledge that debt and we tell them what we're going to do. If it's $10 a month, that's all we can afford. That's what we do. But now, by acknowledging the debt and facing that creditor, we have, we have made our amends. We have to follow it up, but that's where the fear comes in. 
And then on page 79, that first paragraph, <coughs> although these reparations take innumerable forms, the second sentence, reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience. Now, there's a prayer that follows that. We ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences may be. That was another loophole. I have to remember when it says that we make amends unless we injure harm them or others, I am not them and I am not others. <coughs> so my embarrassment is not a reason not to do an amends. And the last one I see is on page 80. The fourth paragraph down saying after consulting his wife, the second sentence, he saw he had to place the outcome in God's hands or he would soon start drinking again and all would be lost anyhow. So now that we see what happens when we don't do it, what does that amends look like? And I always like to point out, um, once again Webster helped me out with this, is I thought an amends was just an apology. So the definition of an apology is an excuse, to offer an excuse for behavior. And that's what I would do. I would offer excuses of why I behave that way. But the definition of an amends is to change for the better, to remove or correct faults, reparation or compensation for damage done. That's a whole different idea. So a friend of mine kind of summarized these pages and she calls it the four A's of making an amends. The first one is to admit that we were wrong. That's tough. The second one is, is to ask for forgiveness. Not that we forgive them, we're asking them for forgiveness and it doesn't mean they have to give it to us. The third one is, ask what I can do to make it right. And the last one for me is really just for interpersonal relationships was ask if there's anything else I need to know. And I have to tell you for that was some of the most profound part of my amends was if it was a family member or someone I'm friends with that the end say is there anything else I need to know and shut up. Because see, I'm so selfish, I don't even know how I affect people. So for my father, I mentioned earlier that I lived at home until I was 27. Apparently my dad wasn't thrilled with that. <laughs> and he told me he was fearful that I was going to live with him the rest of his life. I had no idea. And he was fearful when I came home from college, I'd put on so much weight that I wasn't going to get a job because I looked pregnant. And I also found out that when I started to turn towards bulimia, my dad was terrified and he was sitting outside the bathroom every time I went to a bathroom in the house, seeing if I was throwing up or not. No idea. Now with my mother, see I think my harms are things I do. And one of the things I learned from my mother is harm is things I don't do. So in my own selfish head, I buy a dress for a family wedding. A month later, I don't fit in the dress. Poor Kim, I'm not going to the wedding. But my mom has to go to the wedding again and make excuses why Kim's not showing up. And knowing that these cousins who don't have a lot of money spent $100 on a plate to invite me to a wedding. 
So what I found from my mom was my inconsistency, my inability to be responsible. Walking home, and, you know, living at home until I'm 27, walking in a room and wondering, is Kim going to be screaming or crying or in a good mood? So it was so important for me to ask that question when I was doing, when I, when I was interpersonal relationships. So the beautiful, um, on the pages, on the bottom of 77, the last sentence of the, the middle paragraph, this to me is a beautiful example of a posture of an amends. Simply, oh wait, yeah, yeah, we go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. So I can't get there unless I'm doing those four-step prayers. Because if I go into step nine not doing those prayers, what happens to me is I'm going to him hoping he's going to admit what he did to me, not helpful and forgiving. It's a current ill feeling, and the only thing I'm regretting is having to do the goddamn amends. So this is not a way to delay it, but it is a way to say we need to use those prayers in order to get into the amends. Um. <coughs> trying to think where this part is. Okay, so on page 77 again, <coughs> about, I'm like 10 lines down from the bottom. But our man is sure to be impressed with a sincere desire to set right the wrong. He's going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than our talk of spiritual discoveries. So I just want to talk a minute about that idea of um, living amends. Because I use that as a loophole too. Living amends meant to me, because it's not this wording isn't in the big book, it meant to me, I don't want to admit that I was wrong and I don't want to embarrass myself. So I'm just going to be a good girl now. And I'll be a good girl now and I don't have to say anything. And that's crap. I always think of, again, with my cousins, that if we, you know, we get together at Thanksgiving and they tease me and I cry and I'm so upset, and then I go there at Christmas and they're wonderful to me and they're acting like Thanksgiving never happened. And I'm all pissed off. I'm like, how could you act like nothing happened? You made me cry. But isn't that what I'm doing when I say living amends? I'm not going to acknowledge how I treated you like crap. The last 20 years, years now, I'm just going to be a nice person to you now. Now on the other end of it, I do believe that every amends is a living amends. Because if I say, this is what I've done wrong and this is how I'm going to make it right, and then the next day I behave the same exact way I did before the amends, what good is that either? So when I say this is how I'm going to make it right, it's my job to continue to do that behavior um, for the rest of my life. Have you ever had the experience of someone not uh, being willing to talk to you or take an amends from you? Um, yes, I can't think of any right now, but I'll, I'll give you an example with a sponsee. She called me up, she had to make an amends to a um, boss, and she told me, I've called him three times, he's hung up on me, but don't worry, I'm going to get him. And I said, no you're not. Mm -hmm. I'm like, he's giving you his answer. He doesn't want to hear it. But you have made the approach. You get the benefit from the approach. I'll give you another side of that same exact scenario. There was a woman I worked with um, who, whose daughter was an alcoholic and she knew I was in a 12-step program, so I kind of helped her 
find some AA meetings and um, you know get her a sponsor and stuff like that. And she had had to kick her out of the house, and they her the daughter her daughter's son was taken from him and placed with her sister. It was a really big mess, and. This woman had emphysema and had a walker with an oxygen tank. So I'm walking in my building and I see Dee like running towards me with the walker. Kim, Kim, I gotta talk to you. I'm like, okay. And she's like, she's, she's, look at my, my daughter. She just, she, she said, look what she put on my door. And it said a little post-it that said, I wanna make an amends to you. She's like, she just started the steps in March. Could she be making amends? It was like in June. I'm so I'm like, absolutely. I said, but what's got you so upset, Dee? And she's like, it's the 26th of the month. And I'm like, yeah? She goes, she probably wants rent. And I'm like, oh my God, this is what we do to people. <laughs> so I said to her, I said, no, you don't. She's like, well, is she gonna drink if I say no? I said, maybe, maybe not, but it has nothing to do with you. If you ever feel like you wanna talk to her, that's fine. She has made her approach. That's what she needs to do for her step work. Whether or not you accept it or talk to her has nothing to do with it. So I think that's what we have to recognize. It's the approach that we make. It's not how somebody receives it. Does that make sense? So let me give you some examples of my amends. So I mentioned I'm passive aggressive. So I would talk a lot behind people's backs. And the amends would not be to go up to someone and say, I'm sorry that I called you a bitch behind your back the last five years. <laughs> so I have to look at my fourth column. Where was my harm? So one of the example is I had, me and this guy Dennis had dated for like six months. We broke up totally amicably, but we were in a singles, a singles group in, um, in South Jersey. And so we all still hung out with the same people and he started dating this girl Karen and we could not stand her. And we talked behind her back all the time. So I let it look at what was my fourth column. Well, my fourth column was not, I didn't want to date Dennis again. We probably should have never dated. We probably should have always been friends. But I was really angry he found someone so quickly and I was still single. And I was feeling really lonely and, and jealous of that, not him, but of him finding somebody. And I had to look at where my harm was. Well, my first harm was with the people I gossiped about, gossiped with, I mean. So the next time her name came up, which didn't take long, um, I told them my fourth column, that I realized this is not about Karen, that I am lonely and jealous that Dennis is in a relationship I am not, and I'm not gonna trash her anymore. And the second thing was, since I talked behind her back, I had to, talk, I had to say something nice to her, to her face. And I went, it took me a couple times, <laughs> and finally this peace came over me, and I went up to her and I said, Karen, I want to thank you for how happy you make my friend. I've never seen him as happy as he's been with you. And that was true. Wow. And they're married now. In fact, I got a couple notifications for her on Facebook. She's a big Facebook person. And we get along great. Another one was the Catholic Church. <coughs> and how do we Catholics make amends? We go to confession. So I went back to my um, grade school church and for those of you that aren't Catholic, when you do confession, you don't see the priest. There's like a shroud between you and the priest. So I went into my spiel that I'm in this 12-step program. It's been a million years since my last confession. Um, and this is why, why I'm here. And the priest started babbling. And I'm like, what is he even saying? And I was, I was like, oh my God, this is Father Murphy. It was my gra grammar school principal. And he was an idiot. But he was really, really, really trying 
and he was really, really, really bad at it. <laughs> and what came over me at that moment was, I thought the church expected me to be perfect, and when I couldn't be perfect, I left. And what I realized the problem was, I expected the church to be perfect, and when the church wasn't perfect, I left. When Sister Helen embarrassed me in fourth grade, that means that I hate all nuns. A couple sick men touched some boys, therefore all priests are asses. And I have to tell you, I am not a practicing Catholic today, but I can go into any church, synagogue, mosque, Quaker meeting center, and I can feel at peace. Because I know that, that God is there somehow, and the dogma that is in that church is helping people. So another one for me, and this was one that honestly was keeping me from, from having that spiritual awakening. And this is before the big book. Every time I was in a ninth step meeting, I would think of this situation. And then I would talk to someone after the meeting. They'd go, oh, you don't know what it meant for that. Forget about that. Okay. And the next time it would come up in the ninth step, I would think about it again and talk to someone. they go, ah, you don't need an amends for that. Well, then I'm confronted with the big book and folding it through these four, four columns. So the situation is, in college I worked at a 7-Eleven, and looking back on it now, as an adult woman, as opposed to an 18-year-old kid, I see that the franchise owner was a real thief, and he had scams going all over the place. But one of the scams was he taught us how to steal food. So if we wanted a hoagie, we would make a fresh hoagie, and we'd backdate it two days, put the wrapper in the, in the write-off bin, and we could have a free hoagie. If we wanted a candy bar, rip off the candy bar wrapper, put the wrapper in the write-off bin, and we could have the free candy bar. And he would write it off to corporate. So everyone said to me, your boss told you to do it. There's, there's no reason that you have to make an amends to that. And 7-Eleven's not out of any money. And I, that's true. But I had to look at my fourth column. Where am I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? I knew it was wrong. But I went against my moral character because one of my big selfish things is if they're getting away with it, I'm not going to be the idiot that's paying for this food. <coughs> so I had to figure out how am I going to make an amends for that behavior of working against my moral compass. So what came to me in meditation was I was going to donate, this was during like the beginning of the recession, so I was going to donate food to a food bank. And ironically, I have a Catholic church at the end of my street, um, and they have a food bank, and I called them up, and I told them what I wanted to do, and they said, well, we're really desperate. Whatever food you have, you know, we, we would really appreciate it. I said, no, 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 I'm going to buy food. What do you want? Well, they were so excited. And I knew that very instant I couldn't be the one to deliver the food because my ego would be way too involved. So I had my father drop off this food. But I also decided that I needed to feel it on a more personal level because I can afford it. And I'm an accountant, so I kind of figured out 1980, this is probably how much it was, and the cost in, 20, in 20, you know, 2010, this is how much it would be. Um, but I wanted to feel it, so I decided not to go out to eat for six weeks so that I could remember all the food I've taken out of the universe that I, that I probably shouldn't have. Now, I just want to use an example of how, when you do these amends, how it kind of cascades to other part of your lives. So I told you I work in an auto auction. So I used to, on our sale day, work the Subaru account. And since I would work that counter, they had free lunch tickets for our, our cafeteria, and I would get a free lunch ticket. Well, after I stopped working the counter, <coughs> the new girl kept giving me the lunch ticket. 
And one day I realized I'm doing the same damn thing I did at 7-Eleven. So I did my, my step work on it. And we came to the conclusion, you know, I came to the conclusion with a, with a fellow that I can't make an amends to my company because I'm going to get this girl in trouble. Right? I'm going to get her in trouble if, for giving me this. So all the amends was the next time she offered it to me, I said, you know what? I was reflecting on this and I don't work on the Subaru account anymore. I'm not going to take that, take the lunch ticket anymore. And she's like, okay, no big deal. But once again, what's it doing in my head? So fast forward again. During the recession, I have a three paycheck month, and I think, oh, what am I going to do with this third paycheck? And I'm like, well, you know what? Let me go to, that, go to that food bank. Let me donate some food there. And I went to the food bank. It was in June. And all, it's the first time I had been inside. It was all bare shelves. And I said to her, I'm like, is this normal? And she's like, well, yeah. She's like, but this time of year is really tough. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I did not realize, because I don't have children, my high school, which is almost across, I almost live across the street from the high school, 70% of the kids are on free lunches. And when the summer comes up, and for the grammar school and the middle school too, when that summer comes up, these parents are dependent on their kids getting a meal at school and they're not having it. And the parents are terrified because they don't have enough money to feed these kids. And I thought, oh my God. So for quite a few years, what I did is every other paycheck, I would go and I had fun. I live in a very economically and culturally diverse town. So one week I'll, I would pick Mexican food for, all the, for the Hispanic community. And one week I would pick like soul food type of things for the African American community. One time I would pick Italian food. Sometimes I would pick snacks. Sometimes I would pick breakfast, I would pick lunch. And I would buy $20, $30 worth of food and drop it off. And I had a great time. But then again, I'm, I'm praying to God, I want to feel this more personally, God. Tell me how I can feel this more personally. Do you guys have Aldi out here, the store Aldi? No. 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 So Aldi is the best store in the world, and you guys are really missing out. <laughs> Fred Meyer. Huh? Fred Meyer. Is that who owns it? No, that's the best. Oh, oh, oh. Um, so it's a very, very um, cheap store. I mean, it's, it, every time I shop in a regular food market, I'm blown away how much food really costs. And part of it, though, is when you go through the counter, there's, there's no one who bags it. They don't give you bags. You have to go off to the side, and you have to use your own bags to bag it up. So, so okay, so I, I'm off bagging my stuff, and I hear a little kerfuffle at the counter. And I go over to see what's going on, and it's a young mom with two screaming kids, and she's got her EBT card, which is her food stamp, like debit card, I don't know if you guys were calling here, and she doesn't have enough money for what's in her cart, and she's deciding what she has to put back. <laughs> and I went up, <coughs> went up behind her and said, hey, can you do me a favor? And she's like, what? I said, can you let me pay the rest of it? And she's like, no, no, no. I said, no, just, just, just pay the rest of it. And I just very calmly paid for it. And as she was crying, I said, listen, when you're in better shape, just do the same for somebody else. Now, I'm not trying to pat, my, pat myself on, this, on the back for that. The reason I'm mentioning that is I live in a very economically challenged neighborhood. I don't think that was the first time that happened. But because of prayer, it was the first time I noticed it. So that's why I mean, like, I think that God is always giving us opportunities. The question is, are we awake enough to hear it? And that day, thank God, I was awake enough to hear it. Now I'm going to give you two <coughs> examples of not my amends. In, in OA, there's a large, you know, it's sad, but a large percentage of women have sexual abuse in their history of some sort or another. I do not have that. So I don't like to share experiences I do not have. 
but I wanted to share this one because I have gotten phone calls from people saying, you're telling me I have to make an amends to my rapist or to my relative who molested me. We have to make an amends for the fourth column. So this one woman called me and she, and she said to me, she's like, I was date raped in college. You're telling me I have to make an amends. And I'm like, no. Let's look at your fourth column. Where were you selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And for this, one in, this woman, what she saw was the guy was a popular athlete and she did not want to cause trouble at the school where he could lose, the, the school could lose a, a star athlete, that she did not want to be seen as a victim, so she never went to the cops. And her biggest thing was her fear that other women were being hurt because she knows that rapists don't rape once. And I said, okay, so there's your harm. How can you make amends for that harm? And we got quiet. And she's like, Kim, I know what I'm going to do. She's like, I live in a university town. And I'm going to call the university and see if they have a rape crisis center. <coughs> and I'm going to volunteer to help give a girl a voice for when I didn't have a voice. And I just thought that was beautiful. You know, I've heard of women that have reported to the cops years later about, uh, I don't know if you know, but like in New York they're having this thing right now, they passed a law where for one year they're, they're suspending the, um, what's it called? Statute the of limitations. Statute of limitations and, and, and women can come and, and put whatever charges against anybody. And it's not like anything's going to happen, but those women are being given a voice to get it on the record. And I just think that's beautiful. Yeah. I, I, I remember a woman who got up and said that she had been molested by her uncle and her amends was to get the family together and tell the family the reason I don't leave my daughters alone with uncle so-and-so is because uncle so-and-so molested me. Because the, it was the fear that he was molesting some of her other relatives. So I just want to say that, that we don't that there's different ways. We never know how God's going to lead us in different direct directions. So the last amends I'm going to give you is one I actually heard on a, on a CD. That's gentleman Bob Darrell from Vegas. And he said one of his sponsees, um, brilliant man, he would wash windows by day and at night he would rob houses. So he would look in people's windows and see who had the good stuff and then he would rob those houses. So in one neighborhood, he robbed 20 homes. And he was told by his sponsor he had to go to that home when the person answered the door, say, were you robbed in, let's say, you know, April of 1994? And if they said yes, or did you live, <coughs> did you live here in April 1994? Were you robbed? Yes. I'm the one who robbed you. I'm here to make it right and had to offer some money. So he did that at 18 houses. But two people kept not being home. So he said to his sponsor, uh, he said to his sponsor, call them. Um, he, he, he said to his sponsor, well, I did 18 out of 20. Is that enough? And he said, did you rob 20 houses? You got to make 20 amends. So he went to this house. Someone finally answered the door, asked if they lived there in April 1994, asked if they were robbed, and he said yes. And he said he was the one who robbed them, and the guy was ecstatically happy asked him to come in, called his wife over, started asking him questions. Well, what did you do over here? And he's like, if I remember correctly, there was a picture on the wall and I tore it down because I thought there might be a safe behind it. And, you know, whatever happened over here? Well, I think there was a, I think I broke something or, okay. So he sat down and he said, I'm here to make it right and gives him an envelope. And the guy goes, no, don't worry about it. We had insurance. Everything's fine. 
He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm here to make it right. And he puts over the, the um, envelope and the guy looks at him. I'm going to cry. No, you don't understand. Up till this moment, we thought our son did it. So I only say that because we don't know how God's going to use these immense. I can't even tell you how many people I talk to who couldn't find someone. And then when they found them, that person had a relative who needed drug rehab or alcohol rehab or needed a 12-step program. And if they had made the amends five years earlier, it never would have happened. So that, that to me is just so amazing. And like I said, that's why the, the beauty of calling people and ask for examples of their amends. Because God, you might be, they might be telling you about an amends they made with their cousin and it's the exact thing that you need to do for your next door neighbor. You just don't know what's going to come up. So we are at 424. We have six minutes till the end of the day. Um, let's just, for one thing, go over the prejudices and then we'll have some questions. <coughs> so is an amend simply saying you're sorry? No. And does everyone understand what living amends means? Yeah. Okay, does anybody have any questions? Did we have any myths for, for eight and nine? That's where the amends. What I just said, that it's saying you're sorry. Yeah, I saw a hand. I just thought um, my amends were that saying asking for forgiveness wasn't part of the deal. That um, that it's not. It wasn't my business about whether they forgave me or not. It was my job to repair it and to uh, to make it right. So, and I'm, I know there are lots of different ways to do amends, but, um, but why don't you talk about forgiveness a little bit and, and, and what the purpose of that is and how that's worked in your amends? I'm interested. Well, the book book doesn't really talk about forgiveness in the sense, but often when I find people ask about forgiveness, it's because they want to, it's because they don't want to forgive other people for what they did. Because they, I think what happens in modern society, I'm going to turn this off, modern society, we, we equate forgiveness with condoning. Mm 